You do, don't have fun with these ads. Uh, okay, beep, 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 beep. Oh, what's that? <laughs> That's called a new sponsor alert. We got some new sponsors to talk about, Brian. I wasn't here last week, and you did a terrible job talking about these sponsors. Oh, let me sit back and just listen. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, this ad is for you. Are you tired of wearing those same threads that you wore? I don't know. You bought it for Easter six years ago, and you still wear it? Are you tired of thinking it's time to get something new and you can't afford it? You don't know where to find something that's modest. You don't know where to find something that's apostolic. Brian, we're here for them today. Oh, yeah. We're here for you. Check out my friends at ModestDirect.com. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And you know what? They're even giving us a promo code. You're saying, oh, this is too expensive. I can't afford that. Hey, listen, the Crucial Conversations got your back, but they got your wardrobe. It's Crucial 21. That's right. Crucial 21. And you can get 10% off your entire order. You know what? You can give that 10% to the church. You got 10% off your clothes. Let's go ahead and give that back. Modest Direct Clothing Line is dedicated for the message of what, Brian? Nothing but modesty. And here's the thing. They also have five-star Google rating and have been in business for over four years. Let that sink in. There's surely some haters out there somewhere, but nope, they got a five-star Google review. And here's another cool thing. They have a VIP email group. Super easy to sign up for. So let me get this straight. You're gonna get you're gonna be called the VIP with this group. You're gonna get a five-star, superstar, unique shopping experience, and then all of a sudden you're gonna get a discount. Come on, guys. What are you waiting for? Go to modestdirect.com and get shopping. Get to shopping. We're tired of all the excuses. Retire that six-year-old Easter dress and get shopping today. Another new sponsor alert. What was that sound I was making? That's our new sponsor alert right there. It sounds more like a Morse code. All right, here's the thing. I I personally connect with this new sponsorship, God First Living. If you are a business owner and you don't know how to um, segregate your time for church, for your family, with uh, your business, and you don't know how to balance it all, guess what? God First Living is here to take care of that. If you have a business adventure and you don't know how to move forward, Corey Sanders is here for you with 20 years plus a years of experience. He offers workshops, 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 seminars to educate believers on what they should do. This guy has owned multiple companies, just to name a couple real quick. He owns a real estate lock and box. He owns 52 houses and apartments, storage units, discount store, carpet stores, digital. What does this guy not do? He does it all. And you know what? He's owned and sold more properties as well, such as property management. This dude sent me an email. The original Burger King. Crazy. Hmm. Absolutely crazy. This dude owned the original Burger King. I wish he wouldn't have sold that because I would be all over that, Brian. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this guy's a licensed UPCI minister for over 10 years, been the associate pastor for over over 20 years. With an awesome church there in Mattoon. Everybody, you know that tambourine video that went around with that guy playing the tambourine? Mm. You know that guy that got real awesome with it? Oh, he goes to that church. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's, that is a part, he's a part of that church. Anyway, get connected with this guy. You can find him on Facebook. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him on Instagram. You can go anywhere to find him first. But here's the thing go to GodFirstLiving at gmail.com. Send this guy some questions. He told me this week that he was building a new platform, a new website for everybody to go check it out. You can go directly there. We're going to have his link in our bios very soon. Guys, go check out the, the company God First Living. Oh, man. Those are two new exciting sponsorships. That is really exciting. Yeah, and he's got another 
sponsorship we're about to start talking about. Oh, but wait, there's more. Yeah, there's more. But you know what? We're not going to talk about it quite yet. There's more. We're not just going to talk about it yet because it's still being built. Guys, you do not want to miss out on what we got coming on the Crucial Conversation. Brian, until we can get there, tell us about Anderson Heaton there. Oh, man. It's hot in this his, room right now is why I'm his, thinking about it. His his business is a breath of fresh air. It's a cool breeze on a warm day. It's the sun outside in the month of May. And well, I think that's the song like my girl but his business is going to take care of all of your needs anderson heat and air is going to be able to fix your broken heater your broken air unit the summer's coming up i know you think it's never going to get here because you still have three feet of snow setting out in the back because you've been you scraped up your driveway and it hasn't all melted away yet and you're thinking hey summer's like never going to get here there was a groundhog that came out and that groundhog saw a shadow and we got at least six more weeks of this forget all that forget it what we need to be worried I just about ho- i just hope that that groundhog was a liberal i don't know what that means that means it's a liar fake news <laughs> the phone number is oh, for anderson we'll, we'll take that out <laughs> the, the phone number for anderson heat and air is uh 870-664-1967 you can call him today he's going to come in he's going to again he's going to get air in your home or if you want to go ahead and get some heat before summer so that way maybe i, I don't know what what while why you'd want it during the summer but you never know maybe you're one of those folks that likes a Likes the heat, uh, but he can come in and he can take care of all that. Oh, man. Bro, what are we doing for lunch today? I wish Trauma Hogs Barbecue. Bro, I am so hungry right now. I, I just hope that I can calm down my stomach growling. We were out there yesterday. Oh, man. Let's talk about it for just at least 30 seconds here. The the smell. The aroma. The absolute, I love that. The aroma. It just mm. wafted in as they were cooking on some post oak. We right, had you're actually, we're and, recording the, these ads before... Brian goes out and preaches. I think if we keep talking about this, we won't have a preaching sermon because the anointing is all over Brian right now talking about this. Yeah. It's a good thing I get paid by the hour. <laughs> oh, God. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. I, it's free. Oh, I get paid man. the same whether I preach short or long. Guys, but- check out our friends on Facebook, Instagram. You can call them. You can go by. They are the real deal. Trauma uh, Hogs. He sells, Tell, his he sells, sauce is amazing. He sells his own sauce. He's got his own rub. He sells, if you watch How to Barbecue Right on YouTube, he sells his seasonings. He's got some seasoning, I think, from Heath Riles there. I know he's got Blue Hogs barbecue sauce And I know there. for a fact we're about to do a crawfish boil with all the stuff he's got. <gasps> because he has a prototype. Well, I can't tell about the prototype because well, here's they've only the got thing. one thing of it right now. Here's the thing. If you want to get close to Brian and I's heart, have that crawfish boil. And if you don't know what that is, I want you to go ahead and send us an uh, email at um, thecrucialconversation at gmail.com. We'll personally invite you to one of our crawfish boils. Man. Yeah, that's for real. We ain't paying for it, those but you can come. As I say, those things ain't cheap. There's one way to Tony and I's heart. And that's with cash. (laughs) What you you can do is you can go on Facebook and you can follow Trauma Hogs Barbecue. Again, they are located at uh, 6127 Highway 49 North in Brooklyn, Arkansas. And uh, I think he's even going to do some stuff online. Go to to their website. He'll send it to you direct as well. You need to just follow their social media so that way you get connected and know when they're doing cooks and all that. And, man, I'm just so excited for Jason and what he's doing with Trauma Hogs Barbecue. And I hope that can be a small part because he cooks way better than me. Mm, Me too. 
Me too. That odor yesterday. Aroma. Not odor. We better get to this. The, odor sounds We negative. better get to this episode because I'm about to go eat. I know you're preaching here in what? Uh, it's 1041, so you got what? Uh, 19 minutes. I can be late. They can't do the service without me this morning. <laughs> so, I, all right. I'm, I'm headed out here. I'm going to get something to eat. Okay. So we've got a special guest with us. Tony, a long time ago, did a solo episode without me. And so I decided it's my turn to get some revenge. This is an episode with me and Dr. Jeffrey Brickle from Urshan College and uh, Urshan Graduate School. It's a very interesting conversation. He's definitely a scholar scholar. And I hope you guys enjoy this, learn something, and uh, then check out our sponsors and let them know that the Crucial Conversation sent them. Play that music. Well, let's go get something to eat. You think we can make it 19 minutes? Oh, it's 18 minutes. We got to get out I just had a thing of cookies. Uh, Play it. Hey guys, this is Brian, and I'm Tony, and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. absolutely my honor to host today and on the crucial conversation dr jeffrey brickle who is a professor at urshan college and urshan graduate school and uh, has written some books with the apostolic handbook series and has done uh, has been published in, in many works and uh, I, i'm absolutely thrilled this is my kind of conversation if anyone's been listening to the crucial conversation for a while you know that uh, people that have are academics are people that i gravitate to as uh, as someone who's <laughs> Uh, is a complete amateur at theology and 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 uh, different uh, aspects of of uh, study. Um, I, I love these kinds of conversations, and so Dr. Jeffrey Brickle has been uh, recommended by some of my good friends as a scholar's scholar. And so, Dr. Brickle, thank you for taking some time today. And I'm sure what is a busy schedule. I see there's a symposium coming up uh, in I think next week's what I saw on Facebook, unless I looked at the dates wrong. And then um, I know you're you're getting ready for that. And so you've taken some time to have a conversation with me today. And and it's absolutely my honor to have you here, as I've as I've said. And so I'm interested um, uh, to, for our listeners out there that aren't familiar with your name or, or some of the works that you've done. What's your background? How did you get involved in, in church? Uh, why did you decide to pursue a, uh, a the theology at, at the highest levels? Where all have you gone for study? Uh, give us a little background about you, sir. Well, uh, thank you, Brother Hurd, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast, and I'm, I'm honored myself to uh, participate. It's a long story. Uh, I grew up in a small town in western New York, and uh, during my uh, late teen years, I became a, a hippie. 
actually, which is uh, kind of surprising when you look at my uh, uh, follically challenged uh, uh, hairdo right now. But uh, in 1982, I left uh, my hometown and moved to Boston, Massachusetts to be a student at Berkeley College of Music. And it was there that I uh, was in a Bible study uh, right down the hall from my dorm room. And uh, I was not raised uh, apostolic, Pentecostal, so it was quite a shock uh, to be in that kind of environment. But long story short, I uh, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was baptized in Jesus' name in the fall of 1982. Well, I also became very uh, involved in uh, campus ministry. In fact, I was uh, full-time for a couple of years. So over the course of time in dealing with college students, I became more and more uh, interested in sort of academic studies. Uh, college students had a lot of questions. Uh, pat answers didn't, didn't suffice. And so I found myself constantly going uh, searching for, for better answers to their, to their questions. And over time, some opportunities came up to finish my education. I didn't graduate from, from Berkeley, uh, but eventually went on, uh, did my, my bachelor's degree my master, uh, at Harvard University, my master's at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, all the while you know, working full time. Uh, I worked in a number of academic environments, uh, I worked at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, for a number of years, and as well as Harvard University. I worked in the chemistry department there. So that environment kind of shaped uh, my, my thinking in a lot of ways. And then fast forward to uh, 2000, when I was invited by Tim Dugas, who was then president of uh, Gateway College in, here in St. Louis, to uh, come and, and uh, interview for a, a sort of a dual role where I was, I, I interviewed with the board of Gateway as well as the board of this new emerging school called Urshan Graduate School of Theology and essentially was accepted for that position on the grounds that I would have to uh, teach full-time at Gateway for a minimum of two years before moving on. Ultimately, they wanted me to teach at the graduate school. So I, that's kind of what happened. And during the time I was uh, in St. Louis, I did my PhD program at Concordia Seminary uh, in town. And so that's kind of the, how it all developed. Um, that's the short version of a, a much longer and meandering story. I could imagine. So what was it like whenever coming from a, a hippie background to walk into an apostolic church service uh, for the first time? What did you think about you know, your, your first exposure to the apostolic church? Well, I knew bits and pieces uh, growing up in a, a Protestant denomination that was very similar to Catholicism, kind of high church environment. Uh, I'd known a few charismatic people, I've had, ver had various people witnessing to me, but I've, I found as a very introverted person, especially back then, um, I found it uh, to be a bit overwhelming. 
you know, the whole, uh, you know, walking in the, into the Bible study that first day and people are praying aloud, uh, laying hands on people. I, I was like, I felt very uncomfortable. In fact, I spent the next week uh, uh, deliberating with myself as to whether I would ever go back. And I remember going back to talk to the uh, young student in that who hosted that Bible study. And he essentially talked me into coming back, you know, and he showed me how this kind of worship style was actually uh, biblical. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very different. I remember uh, I was in part of the a four night, I think it was four night revival. And every night I would go up to the altar after service at the invitation of the evangelist. This was at Boston's United Pentecostal Church. And I would pray, but I, I, I couldn't concentrate because people were laying hands and talking in my ears and it was chaotic, you know, kind of chaotic uh, for me. And I remember the last night asking uh, John Harrison, who was the guy that host, host, hosted the Bible study in his room, I, I said, should I try one more time for the Holy Ghost? Yes, Jeff, you need to go up and, and try again. And I can remember in my mind thinking, I'm just going to blank, I'm just going to forget about all this going around on around me and concentrate on God. And it was at that moment where I began to just think about how good God had been to me uh, in my life. And that some, and some of the, uh, you know, near death experiences I had and so forth. And it was at that moment, I just felt a, you know, a, a flood of emotions and uh, the Lord filled me with the Holy ghost I, I tell people it was like lightning and you can see right where it landed on top of my head. <laughs> and uh, I started speaking in tongues in a, like a torrent and started climbing up the altar. And this shy, bashful, introverted young man took off doing laps around the church. And in a sense, I've been at least figuratively doing that ever, ever since it was. Yeah, it was incredible. I, I remember one, uh, college student who uh, happened to be Asian, who was a Berkeley student, Berkeley College of Music student. And he, rem he couldn't figure out what was happening with people jumping and running and shouting and all the things that happened. He's told me that he was looking at the ventilation system, trying to figure out where they were pumping laughing gas into the auditorium. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's. It's definitely a culture shock. Of course, I take it for granted because that's all I've ever known. I was I was raised in in the Apostolic Church, and so uh, it's what I've always known. So I always find it interesting to hear people from a different background what they thought of the first time they came to to one of the, our churches because it is very different than what you get in a lot of different church settings. Now, I think as time has progressed, it seems like it's more and more common. People have a much more similar. Uh, worship experience now because it seems as though the non-denominational world has kind of adopted in a sense some of our practices but even then it's still we, we do have our distinctives so that that is a very interesting that he would look to see what was going on in the ventilation system to see if they were pumping something in that is pretty funny <laughs> yep <laughs> so um, I, I want to ask you, I know this is kind of personal, but you said you were an introvert and that's kind of how I kind of feel myself. What's it like as someone that has a um, introverted personality? What's it like whenever you have to give a, a, a speech or 
do a lecture or do you do you feel intimidated? Do you still get stage fright whenever you had to step up in front of students or a or a, a board or I've seen that you I think I saw on YouTube that you preached at the Pentecostals of Sydney when you preach in front of a church and teach in front of a church. Uh, do you still get the, the little butterflies and some anxiety or have you over the years you're like, oh, this is just this is just what I do now? Uh, absolutely. I still struggle with that. I, I tell people I'm actually an extroverted introvert and I do well one-on-one, but as the number of people multiply, my anxiety increases. And I've actually uh, sort of sought help on that. I've, I've looked into, you know, this whole issue of stage fright and without getting you know, into it, you know, as a, I'm a musician and musicians struggle with the same, same thing. How do you, you know, when, you, when you're involved in a public setting, how do you sort of get in the zone? Uh, and I, I'm not sure where to take this conversation, but uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, a, a bass player named Victor Wooten, who's generally considered the uh, most incredible player on the planet. I've learned some things from him. I've learned some things from others who've written on it. And essentially, the notion is, is when you're preparing, let's say you're practicing your instrument or I'm preparing a lecture, you know, you're, the part of the brain that is, is, is most critical is should be fully engaged. Yeah, you're critiquing what you're doing because you want to you better yourself and so forth. But... Uh, experts will say when you get into uh, the setting, the performance setting, whether that's you're playing a concert as a, as a musician or you're teaching in class or whatever it may be, you have to you have to shut sort of shut off that critical side of your brain, the part that sits there and goes, oh, that didn't sound good or oh, you played a wrong note or uh, people are thinking weird things about whatever it may be. And you just have to get into the to the what they call the zone. Uh, and for me, that has helped immensely because, oh my goodness, I I struggled so much. I can tell you a quick story. Back at Boston's United Pentecostal Church, uh, which was pastored by the late uh, brother Denver Stanford, um, he had a Future Preachers of America meeting, uh, and that was back in the time when I was. I felt a call to ministry. And so each of us would have an opportunity to, to speak, typically five minutes, you preach. And then Brother Stanford would ring a cowbell when your time was over. <laughs> and then one lucky soul got ten, at the end got 10 minutes to speak. And I can, I can tell you one, I was so nervous about public speaking that I'll never forget this one time, I had paid pages and pages of notes and I was preaching through the pages of notes. I got to an illustration. I told the illustration. And when I, and when I got done, uh, my mind completely blanked out, froze. I had absolutely no idea what, I, what my sermon was even about, what that illustration had anything to do with anything. My hands shaking. I flipped through my pages of notes to try to find the first page one that had my title on it so I could remember what in the earth I was even talking about. So I think I've come a long way since then, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it's something that I continue to, to work on. 
it's a work in progress for I think anyone that does public speaking. I think they say that I've, seen, I've heard before that uh, public speaking is uh, everyone's second greatest fear, second to uh, I think uh, a fear of heights or something like that. That's uh, it's it's a, always a little bit of a learning curve as you, as you're developing and, and beginning to speak in front of people. Um, so uh, with with you going through the academic pursuits that you've gone through, what are your areas? Uh, that you're most interested in and, and where would you consider yourself more of an expert in? What's, what's your, what's your wheelhouse? Yeah. So, so thanks for asking. My passion really is uh, largely in new Testament studies. Um, it was a new Testament that years ago back in New York state, uh, I started reading and it was, it, it revolutionized my life. So new Testament studies, uh, and so dealing with the Greek text, I love the Greek, ancient Greek language, um, issues like ancient rhetoric, uh, in what's called intertextuality, uh, which is a fancy uh, way for, a, a fancy term for how texts are in conversation with each other. You know, it's a funny story years ago, uh, Dr. Jared Runk and I were sitting in the uh, cafeteria at the old campus and a bunch of people sitting around and he and I love to talk about intertextuality and we started talking about it. We noticed that everyone got up and left. <laughs> uh, but I find it a fascinating topic. Uh, I love the Gospel of John, Epistles of John, the Apocalypse, as well as Lucan studies, so the study of Luke Acts. I'm very interested in ancient education, ancient uh, literacy, uh, what's called ancient media culture, which my uh, dissertation, my doctoral dissertation uh, was sort of a piece of that study. Ancient media culture has to do with the ways that people communicated, remembered, uh, used texts and so forth in the ancient world, how they, uh, communicated with, uh, with one another. So issues like orality with an O or allrality with an AU, how texts are spoken aloud, the patterns of sound, uh, what I do something called sound mapping, the way that they were heard, uh, things like mem the memory arts, how did people uh, remember texts, uh, social or cultural memory, how we view the past through the lens of the present. Issues like uh, performance of text. So when a le ancient lector read a text out loud, uh, what was the body language? What do we know about that language, uh, that kind of po the posture and the hand gesturing and so forth? What do we know about that through ancient statuary references to public speaking uh, in the ancient world and so forth? Uh, what's called scribality, uh, how manuscripts were made and so forth, how they were uh, transmitted, all that kind of stuff. So I could say I could say more. I tell people my interests are very eclectic. I, I love the, the ancient world, the, the world of the first century uh, in particular. So for me, my passion is, is really about entering into the world of these texts. You know, how can I position myself as part, you know, as 
as part of the audience back then would have so that I fully, I become immersed in the text. I, I sometimes, uh, you know, use the analogy if you're familiar with, uh, you know, the, the wardrobe. Uh, oh, is that uh, Tolkien? I forget if it's Tolkien or... Uh, uh, the uh, language in the yeah. wardrobe is uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. That's, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, how how one goes through the wardrobe and you enter into a different reality, a different realm. So I, I view the New Testament, well, the biblical documents as invitations to enter in as fully as possible to, 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 you know, to sense them, to be as though you're actually there. Uh, they're not, to me, they're not just repositories of, you know, uh, doctrines per se that that's not to say there isn't doctrine in them or uh but their experiences they're in many cases narratives that are trying to get us to follow particular moves and follow the contours of the text so i'm i'm also really into what's called uh spa spatiality it has to do with how you know how ancient texts depict depict spaces uh, one of the ancient techniques of rhetoric was known as uh, ekphrasis, uh, sometimes pronounced ekphrasis, which meant to, to how does a writer write in such a way is to make the audience visualize what they're writing about. So I could go on and on, but that's kind of, it's a menagerie of different topics that to me all relate together and help make the ancient text come alive. So there's a there's a lot that that you've just mentioned that in my mind I'm just thinking of different things that, that would be great to kind of dive into because I think you opened up a, a lot of stuff and I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there are saying well I'm, I would like to know a little more about these different subjects uh, one that just to relate to what we've already kind of had a conversation about where we talked about public speaking and you mentioned in there uh, uh, things that you're interested about in the way that the gospel was communicated how things were read aloud how the listeners. Uh, were able to visualize what the speaker was saying in the first century. So um, I'm thinking, you know, obviously we're dealing with a different language in that now, you know, in the, in the North American church, we have primarily, we are using the English translations of the scripture. And sure. I'm thinking of, of things like where the apostle Paul says, um, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall be changed. And, and I'm just thinking about how I would feel, how I feel in church when I hear that, the things that are going on in my mind. In the first century, what were how much of what was in the Greek text that they used to grab the attention of listeners, what were the, some of the things that they would do? And explain to me, how is it that, um, that the preaching and the communication and the translation of Scripture, because I know they use scriptoriums and so uh, the way that documents were 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 um, written down and how copies were made, since they didn't have obviously photocopiers in the in the first century and in the early centuries of the church, how it was read in a scriptorium and people were writing down what they heard. How was it the? What were some of the rhetorical devices that were used to keep people's attention and to trigger the imagination and of of the listeners? Wow, yeah, that's a great question. Actually, a series of questions. Um, so I might begin by saying that my dissertation was, uh, it's, 
It's called Aural, A-U-R-A-L, Design and Coherence in the Prologue of 1 John. So I spent a number of years focusing in on essentially the sound patterns in the Greek text of the opening of the, of the first epistle of John, four verses in our English translation. And the assumption is that in our modern Western culture, most of us read silently and privately. So we scan the pages with our eyes and we, the processing goes on internally. So, this, so the, the sensory apparatus that's sort of stimulated is visual looking at a text. Well, in the ancient world, uh, most by and large studies have shown most people uh, in the Greco-Roman empire were functionally illiterate. They weren't, they hadn't, they weren't educated uh, uh, through the stages of uh, ancient education to be fully literate. So, so let's say, you know, roughly 85 to 90% of people couldn't read. So how were they able to uh, encounter and, you know, deal with these texts? Um, a skilled lector, someone who had been trained to read these texts out loud became the sort of the intermediary, right? So uh, when, when, let's say one of Paul's letters, uh, and I'll say a few things in a moment about how these letters were probably produced, but uh, an envoy would deliver the letter. The envoy was usually the same person as the lector the church would gather and this person would then read these letters aloud. And so, you know, we're so accustomed in our, in our culture to books with, you know, uh, covers with, you know, information about the title. We have a table of contents. We got blurbs on the back. That's how we sort of enter into that book. Well, imagine, your uh, experience is actually auditory. You're listening to a lector and you're watching that lector in a public setting. So others are doing it as a community. That is your entree in, or entry into the, the, the experience of the book. And you don't, you're not looking at nicely, uh, you know, type, nice typographical conventions, which divide sentences with periods and other, you know, exclamation points, question marks, virtually no punctuation in these ancient documents, you're actually processing the document orally. You're listening to the patterns of sound that give it uh, coherence and sometimes, you know, with variation. So an author will deviate from a pattern and, and so forth. So you're, you're actually listening and processing in that, it that way. So how are these documents produced? Uh, in a variety of ways. But one common way was for the author to dictate and then a scribe, also the technical name is an amanuensis, would then record those words, possibly in, a, in, in our case, in the form of a, a, Greek, a Greek shorthand. And often uh, they would sort of transcribe that onto a wax tablet, which is the sort of the, the modern equivalent or the ancient equivalent of a modern, maybe a, a you know a tablet, an iPad, uh, maybe a notebook. So then, then the author, and perhaps with help from that editor or scribe, they would 
edit it, they would improve it, they'd get it to where they were, were satisfied, and then they would transfer it onto a more permanent uh, medium like papyrus or in some cases vellum. And it would be, you know, written with ink essentially. So, uh, and then of course, as these documents circulated, I'm giving you the, the shorthand version of all this, they would circulate, you know, different, let's say different churches uh, would communicate and find out, well, hey, we've got Paul's, Paul sent us a letter. We heard he sent you a letter. Let's, let's have our, you know, local congregational scribe copy them. And they, and they were copied. And of course they were copied by hand. So, you know, a lot, a lot of people today get very upset over issues of the variance in the text. Like Dr. Barter. What's that? Like Dr. Bart Ehrman, who's made a career out of talking about these things. Yeah, er Ehrman is. Uh, yeah, I could say a lot about uh, about him. Um, that field is called textual criticism. He's an expert, and he does very well uh, with you know his expertise. Of course, he he does have an agenda, which uh, plays into what he does with the data, uh, but for, for modern people, and you, you touched on this a moment ago, you know, we're a, accustomed to making endless numbers of copies of a document that are virtually identical. You know, we've got copy machines, we've got electronic means to duplicate and so forth. Well, in the ancient world, every single manuscript had to be copied by hand. So think about, you know, I'm a, I'm a bass guitar enthusiast. There's a company, uh, one of the best known uh, bass companies is called Federa, F-O-D-E-R-A, not the hat, but yeah. <laughs> and they make every instrument by hand. And so there's variations and so forth. Uh, think of a, a workshop where craftsmen, craftspeople by hand, you know, they're making, they're copying these manuscripts and yes, we do. You mentioned scripto a scriptorium. Uh, a scriptorium is sort of a, an ancient version of a photocopy machine. What do we know about them? And that's not to say all biblical documents were copied this way, but it was, it was one of the means. A, uh, the master scribe would, sta would stand sometimes at a, at, a, at a podium and read off from the, uh, the, the, the main copy and then these scribes would listen, and then in turn, they would copy out what they heard. Well, you can imagine distractions, uh, mishearings, uh, a scribe perhaps, uh, not may maybe, you know, think of the classic example in English, two, two, and two, T-O, T-O-O, T-W-O. So a scribe is orally processing what the master scribe is reading, so sometimes there can be variants. They may skip a line. Different things can happen. Now, again, that's not the only way that manuscripts were copied. Uh, sometimes they would work with directly with a copy visually, and 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 then trans, you know, copy that. And out of the sum, I don't know what the latest count is. There's well over five thousand. I think it's probably closer to six now. Ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we know that virtually no two copies are exactly identical. 
And yeah, that's not comfortable to us modern folks, but that that's the reality of how it was done. So I'm someone who I, I welcome looking at the variance of a text because that, that gives me information. It's almost like an early commentary on the text. And instead of uh, you know, approaching it from a negative stance, this helps me to understand here's different, here's what the scribes were doing, some of the scribes were doing, and 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 I can in some cases you can tell where there was a slip of the pen and so forth. So anyway, that's yeah a long explanation to your question. And it's better than the alternative, which is having a um, from the ancient world a controlled text, such as the, what happens in Islam, where it's all a controlled text, and so the whole basis of their belief is that the one document that they controlled was the accurate document where we had a free translation of the new Testament, which opens it up where we can see and analyze and can compare and find out what the best reading is rather than just hoping that the one that was preserved was the accurate one that came from, in their case, the prophet or in our case from the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. And the autograph, the autographs of the new Testament, the, the first copy that was made or not copy the first actual document itself those are long gone so yes we can be part of this quest to try as best we can to determine what the original reading is but the reality is we have lots of manuscripts uh, copied over time by different scribes lots of them are missing so it's kind of it it it's like detective work and we have we know of families of manuscripts that were produced presumably in different parts of the ancient Mediterranean world, and yeah, and and the whole issue of you know what approach do you use? How do you when you look at these variants? What uh, you know what methodology do you use to determine what was most likely the original reading? Right. So when you're reading uh, the Greek text or, or you're, you're listening to it, what are some passages to you that just really grab your attention, that illuminate the, the world that they're discussing uh, to you? What are some, some powerful passages that you, would, you could point to be like, that to me is just incredible, the way that they wrote that, the way that they, they gave that to the scribe or however it was originally communicated. What were some passages to you that uh, just you're like, that's a textbook example of, of beautiful uh, communication of, of a text. Yeah, that's a great question. So the text that comes to mind to me that's probably been overall the most impacting is the very uh, text that I uh, worked on on my dissertation. And so I mentioned earlier that ancient books, well, we think of modern books that have all kinds of uh, clues on the cover and uh, you don't have to look far in, into, inside. You learn about the author, the table of contents. Well, in the, in the ancient world, the, what's what we call the prologue or a proem, there's, there's different names for it. Uh, these, the opening part of a book was extremely important for uh, kind of uh, putting the audience, sig signaling to the audience what the what kind of genre the book was, you know, what kind of literary type, uh, what were some of the topics, uh, 
to present the ethos of the author. In other words, why, why should I listen to this book? Why should I trust this author? So they're going to sort of drop some clues about their whatever it may be, credentials and so forth. Um, so the opening of, a, of an ancient book uh, did its best to persuade the audience to continue to listen. And so what I discovered, you know, in my study of the prologue of First John, a lot of modern scholars who sort of operate under this, these assumptions that I told you about earlier that, they, you know, we, in, in, our, in the modern West, we typically read books silently to ourselves. A lot of these scholars were saying, you know, this opening passage of First John is really poor. It's poorly written, it's convoluted. Uh, and so admittedly, the, the opening, the first four verses of 1 John are generally considered the most complicated, the most complex. It's the most complex passage in all of John's writings. You know, that which was, was from the beginning in English, uh, which we have heard and so forth. So a lot of scholars, not all of them, but a lot of them said, this is bad, you know, bad grammar, it's a mess. Where, well, I said, sure, if we read under that paradigm, but if we go to the ancient world, which was very oral, oral uh, in its way of going, doing business and, and dealing with text, what happens when we read it aloud? What are the patterns? Uh, I actually, uh, recruited through the help of my doctoral advisor, uh, a scholar from Greece uh, named Chris, C-H-R-Y-S, Chris Karagounis, who's done a lot of, lot of studies and he's a native Greek person. And he produced an audio uh, uh, for me, audio recording. Um, I studied uh, a text, uh, an ancient treatise by Dionysius of Halicarnassus on, it's called On Literary Composition. It's really the only, it surviving uh, uh, treaty, treatise on the topic of how writers would write for the ear instead of the eye. And so I said, well, wh what happens if we, we listen to this ancient document through, the, through this auditor Dionysius? Dionysius uh, was a teacher of rhetoric. He later moved to Rome uh, and he was really concerned with how documents sounded and did they sound appropriate to their content? And, uh, uh, you know, we think of euph euphony. This is the notion that things sound good. They sound right to, to our ear. So long story short, I did sound mapping. I did all kinds of analysis. And the essence was that, no, this document doesn't achieve the standards of you know, a classically trained writer like Plato, let's say, or Thucydides, but within its context and what it's trying to do within the first century, it fits just right. In other words, the audience would listen. They'd, they'd be persuaded that this author is an eyewitness of Jesus. He heard, he touched, he, he, he was there. And the way the patterning works, the, di the digression, there's two digressions in that passage. I and I could go on and on about it, but essentially, you know, I would say that these modern scholars have, have 
have missed the boat. They've, they haven't fully allowed this document to speak. They haven't heard its voice within its original context. So yeah, if you want to, if you want to read more, you can you can buy buy my book. It's uh, published by TNT Clark, and uh, lots more detail there. But when when you're reading the Gospels and the Epistles and the Apocalypse, um, do you see? And I think I asked them. Um, Dr. Jeremy Painter, this as well. Um, do you see differences between the individual writers to where you can see kind of uh, some of their, uh, maybe some of their educational background in it? Or are there some writers that are more simple and there's others that are writing at a higher level where I would assume Paul would, you know, with his training back and I think they said they had the equivalent of multiple doctorate degrees or something. I've heard that before. Could you can you see the different levels and the different uh, aspects and personalities coming through in the way the individual uh, apostolic writers communicated? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the writers of the New Testament. It isn't like what's the word monolithic. They're not. That's I'm not sure if that's the word, but they're not. They all come. Uh, to the task of writing these documents, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit, but they all come with their very gifts, their outlook, their training, their command of Greek, and so forth. So yes, you see a wide span where someone like John uh, has, in essence, some of this, the, the, the simplest Greek uh, in the entire New Testament, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, uh, the writer to the Hebrews has some of the finest Greek. And in, in, in fact, it, it approaches classical levels or uh, the Greek of ancient Athens known as Attic. It was a dialect of ancient Greek. Uh, his Greek is much more sophisticated than John. I mean, he uses all kinds of, uh, in his use of dependent clauses, participles, Voca his vocabulary is much richer. Uh, sentences are much more complex, on and on and on. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews is, in my estimation, clearly uh, highly educated. Uh, he's studied rhetoric and practiced rhetoric in an advanced, at an advanced level. So, uh, and arguably, the epistle to the Hebrews is almost many scholars will say it's like a sermon uh, written down. It has so many uh, oral elements uh, to it. It's a it's a masterpiece. So, well, so is John, but they're very, they're very different. Um, is someone who's spent a lot of time working in John's uh, writings and, and reading his Greek. Uh, I also teach Luke. Uh, Luke's Greek is, is uh, in many ways superior to John's. Uh, and it's probably, it's very likely that uh, Luke's uh, spoke Greek. Uh, we would call it using a quasi modern pronunciation, uh, kine. Um, his, his Greek, uh, Luke's Greek is again, better. He, he uh, probably spoke it as a native where someone like John uh, probably has is a fisherman, uh, Sea of Galilee would have spoken Aramaic, most likely. That was G Jesus's uh, native language as well. He might have known 
some Hebrew, heard Hebrew, he heard the Bible read in Hebrew in the synagogue and so forth. Um, so yeah, there's a, I, I mean, I could say a lot more. Paul, uh, Paul's, a, a, his Greek is quite good. So yeah, there's a spectrum within the New Testament of, of uh, linguistic ability. And, and I think that's beautiful because it gives us a diversity of, of sort of outlooks again. I mean, we have four gospels, not one for written gospels. So in each of those gospels seems to have been uh, constructed, crafted, sort of with a general audience in mind. Uh, and, and that's reflected in the way they're written, the way they're arranged, the emphases and so forth. Hey friends, we hope you're enjoying this episode with Dr. Brickle, but before we move on any further, we want to stop and tell you a little bit about a presenting sponsor. The sponsorship we want to talk to you guys about real quick before we move on is the Movement Conference, August 31st through September 2nd in Maryville, Tennessee. Um, We're not going to tell you much about it, but here's our good friend, Brother Kenneth Carpenter. The Movement Conference is designed to present a balanced apostolic church and apostolic ministries. We are living in a day of extremism. And if there has ever been a time in the history of the church that we remain balanced, it is today. The Movement Conference will be blessed with the dynamic anointed preaching of Brother Jimmy Tony, Brother David Poole, Brother Matthew Ball, Brother Sam Emery, Brother Aaron Bounds, Brother J.H. Osborne, and Brother Raymond Woodward. Make plans now to be a part of the very first The Movement. This is definitely an event you will not want to miss. The first 400 registrants get $75 per person, or groups of six or more are $50 per person. Bring your friends, bring those around you, bring your church, Guys, you don't want to miss this. The next 200 people, they're 85 per person. Then in the last 100 restaurants, there's $100 per person. Due to COVID, we're not going to be able to pack this thing out, but you want to go ahead and get your tickets now. Some of my favorite preachers are going to be there. You'll definitely be blessed. Go to livethemovement.org today to find out more information. You can also find it on Facebook or Instagram. If you want to know more about this, you can listen to our past episode with Chad and Fallon and Erickson. Guys, that was a dynamic episode. We hope to see you guys at the Movement Conference, August 31st through September the 2nd. Now, without any further interruption, back to our good friend, Dr. Jeffrey Brickle. It's very interesting that that what you were saying about the way that John wrote since... uh, John it seems to be to me one of the most quoted from of all the gospels and then one of the most um, arresting of your attention when you're reading through the gospels as well. I mean, he writes very differently than the others. And it's also interesting because, I mean, multiple books have been written analyzing what he was saying and even specifically within the prologue of, of the gospel of John. And, and, and I was curious uh, it, because there's so much speculation on what John was communicating in his first gospel, what does John mean in the in the in the prologue of, of his gospel when he he calls Jesus the Word? What does he mean by that? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, uh, Brother Hurd. Um, 
he uses the word logos or logos. Um, and in the original Greek, he, he uses a phrase, anarche, which is identical to the fir very first words of the book of Genesis in the Greek translation known as the Septuagint or the LXX. And so it, it appears what he's doing is he's evoking uh, that introduction to Genesis, right? He's echoing uh, that introduction. And so I like to think of the Gospel of John as uh, that there's a subtext running beneath the entirety of the Gospel of John, and that's essentially the whole Old Testament revelation. And if you read uh, through the, just for example, the opening of the Gospel of John, I mean, he, he, he sort of starts at creation, and he covers, he covers the, the Exodus experience, and, and I can say more about that in a moment. Um, so this gospel was written to an audience that, had, that knew the Old Testament. So they're ha having echoes uh, in their mind, thinking about what does this new, what does this gospel have to do with the old revelation? So he uses the term logos. Well, that, that term was, it's, it's a loaded term. It had wide currency in the ancient world. I mean, the Stoics uh, used the term. It was a term uh, popular in philosophy to refer to the way that the universe sort of held together, how it had structure and form and so forth. So I like to think of the opening of the Gospel of John as inviting, uh, inviting to people of all stripes from that time who, you know, it's likely that John, that John wrote, uh, and, and this is attested by patristic evidence that it was written in, in Ephesus, which was one of the leading cities of its day. A lot of Gentiles, a lot of, you know, pagans. Uh, it was the site of, of the Artemisian, the, the temple of Artemis, uh, sort of co-opted by the Romans as Diana. Uh, there were, uh, it was a, an occult, occult center, magic was practiced. There was a lot of philosophy there, on and on and on. So it's, it's an introduction that sounds very philosophical. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and so forth. So I like to think that a, you know, a philosopher picking up the gospel of John would, would immediately have their interest peaked and go, Wow, what is this about? This looks like some kind of philosophical treatise. But for those, but for those who are in the know, we might say those who are, uh, you know, acquainted with the with the, the Christian tradition, they're going to pick up on this echo, and they're going to say, "Well, you know, this logos seems to be referring to uh, the activity of God in the cre in the creation of the universe as He's speaking and things are happening." And if, and if you read on, all these several themes are picked up from the creation account of life and light and darkness. So I think what John is doing is to present Jesus, uh, and he's, he's presenting Jesus in the sense of the, uh, this is a new creation. This is like rebooting uh reality now 
it's, it's, so it's overwritten over the original creation account and God is doing something uh, uh, new and, and amazing. Um, yeah, I could, I've got so many thoughts going through my head. I'm not even sure where, where all to, uh, to take this, but yeah, it's sort of a, 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 a rift, a, a riff rather on, on Genesis. And he's, I know, I know what I was going to say. So it's interesting to compare the prologues. I, I love prologues. I love to study that as I've already mentioned, compare how each of the gospels starts. Mark, which is very likely the, the first gospel written. Uh, there's virtually no background. It simply starts with the public ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew, he goes, uh, he goes back further to give us a genealogy going back to Abraham and then uh, a nativity account, very Jewish oriented gospel. Then you have Luke who uh, starts with a very formal, elegantly written periodic sentence, the, uh, the most, um, perhaps the most skilled prologue among all the four writers. And then he starts with the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. So he goes back to the, con the conception and birth of John and he intertwines his, his early days with Jesus and so forth. Well, John, what we could say sort of quote unquote trumps them all by going all the way back in time to creation itself. And so Logos becomes um, uh, one, one, in one sense, maybe a metaphor, uh, I, don't, I don't know, a, a loaded metaphor to try to describe uh, what he will talk about, obviously in verse 14, the incarnation. So yeah. Um, Man, I could say, again, I'm, there's, there's so much uh, to say, this whole notion of the scent motif. Uh, he is the one who, who comes down and returns to the Father. So uh, John picks up on this, on this sort of metaphor, which one of my, one of my uh, master's students just did a thesis on this, um, the scent motif from a oneness perspective was, was her topic. And so this becomes a, a wonderful uh, way to, to, to picture the incarnation. And in verse 14, John uses a, a term uh, which literally means to, to tabernacle, to, to pitch a tent. Well, that, what is that? That's Exodus language. That's the wilderness. That's the, that is the uh, tabernacle. And an ancient tabernacle or temple was the uh, for ancient people was like the center of the cosmos. It was the, the place where deity met with humanity. And we know when they dedicated this tabernacle in the wilderness, God's presence came down. They saw that glory. Well, that's exactly the kind of language John uses for the incarnation. God himself came and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. So it's almost like a in a sense, a reenactment of the entire ancient, uh, the entire Jewish scriptures, only modulated in a new key. New things are happening, mind-blowing things. You know, Moses gave the law, Jesus brought grace and truth. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. So this is all the setup for 
this in, this incredible gospel of what some refer to as signs. They're not bread and butter. I, I refer them that way, not that they're, you know, insignificant, but all the miracles that happened in the so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John comes and he, uh, John writes, and he uses a more technical term, samea, to refer to signs. These are th things that Jesus did that point to his identity, his divine identity. So anyway, I've been <laughs> dominating the conversation. I'll, I'll uh, let you um, say something. I, I love it. Um, so, so I, I'm interested in, in some of the, obviously, um, again, that's, a, there's a lot that's been laid out there and I would certainly encourage anyone to, uh, I, I know you write about, uh, the book of John in the Apostolic Handbook series. So if anyone's interested in that, they can continue reading into that and it covers all the gospels, uh, in, in snippets, at least there's little bits into it. I'm sure that you could have gone even deeper in each one of those, but the book can only be so thick. Um, so, um, when, when we're looking from a, a oneness perspective at, at these writings, what, what do you, what is, what do you believe that the writer was communicating when they use terms such as, uh, father to relate to God, uh, son in relation to Jesus? Um, because I know we talked about the, the sending of uh, how Jesus came down and Jesus went back to the father. What do we mean from a oneness perspective? Yeah. Well, wow, that's a great that's a great question, and and you and I uh, sort of talked a bit through email uh, about that. So, I think as a as a starter, um, the the way one approaches these texts, the reading strategy one uses will determine the outcome. So, one's hermeneutic is very very important. I was talking with a friend the other day about this, and. You know, I was saying, you know, we were saying, you know, we could we could pay a hired, we could get a hired gun, a an expert from another perspective, we'll say a Trinitarian perspective, and they can come and read this text, and they will they will offer a a, a persuasive, perhaps a pretty persuasive set of arguments as to why to read that through a Trinitarian lens. I remember during my doctoral program, and I. I think the world of where of the institution where I did my doctorate, they were they were wonderfully wonderful to me, accommodating. I had an incredible a doctoral supervisor or advisor, uh, Dr. Bruce Shuckard. Well, partway through uh, my dissertation process, he says, "You know, Jeff, uh, we're going to have to uh, have you meet with the faculty to discuss your oneness views and and uh, 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 in conversation with our Trinitarian views." which obviously <laughs> we're talking before about anxiety. Imagine you're being <laughs> brought before a committee uh, of, of Trinitarian scholars and you're having to defend your oneness perspective. Doesn't uh, sound fun. <laughs> no, <laughs> I had to go through two meetings like that. And, um, you know, it was interesting because the, uh, these, these professors are Lutheran and for them, every everywhere in in they would see threeness, and and for them that was a, a sign of of the, of the Trinity. And I and I would explain them from a oneness perspective. And at the end of the day, we sort of, you know, whatever, shook hands and left. I didn't convince them, and they didn't convince me. But 
what I found was that their hermeneutic was to read the New Testament through the filter of the Reformation documents and the ecumenical creeds. So that became the lens, the authoritative lens that history of theological development post-New Testament, that became the authorized way to read the New Testament. For us apostolics, we, we go at it from the opposite direction. For us, we start with the New Testament and read forward. So we obviously take very seriously the notion of the Shema and, and so forth. I, I remember sitting in one class uh, there, doctoral class, and the professor who is actually now deceased, uh, it was an Old Testament class, and he made the statement that the Trinity is in the Old Testament as a seed, like a, a tiny little seed form. And I thought to myself, holy mackerel, you know, if the Trinity is in the Old Testament as a tiny little seed, the oneness, God's oneness is like a sequoia. I mean, it's shouted from the rooftops. So I said all that to say the way that we approach the text will determine uh, what we get out of it. So for me, the, the, the notion of, of, a, of a Trinitarian doctrine is a much later development. So it's an anachronism to try to impose a Trinitarian understanding on this first century text. Let's presume John wrote uh, likely sometime in the last decade of the first century. Uh, he is Jewish. John was, was raised as a Jew. He knows the Old Testament Jewish scriptures very, very well. And so, you know, to, to, to start with this notion, God is a trinity, to me is to kind of impose a foreign concept or construct upon the text, right? So, uh, again, and, and, and let me just add one more thing, and that has to do with uh, the notion that, so, I, when I teach John, I often talk, I tell my students, you know, the gospel of John in particular is like a no man's land uh, between the two armies of the Trinitarians and the oneness people. You know, what a no man's land is uh, booby traps and landmines and you can get shot by snipers. And, it, and you know, we, we kind of, us oneness folks, we've got our proof texts, you know, and we've got, here's, Proof text number one, we pull the pin on the hand grenade, we lob it over at the Trinitarians and hope to blow them up. And, and they have <laughs> their stockpile of proof text for why we should read John as, as a Trinitarian document. So they pull the pin and throw the hand grenade at, at us. And I don't know that that's the best way to read, uh, to read John. So this goes back to the notion of entering into the world of the text. Um, I want as best as possible to try to recognize my own presuppositions, my own biases as a North America, North American living in 2021, someone who's living post-enlightenment, you know, post-modernism, all of that. Who am I and what does it mean to try as best as possible to get into the world of this text and, and interpret it through uh, the lens of the first century? So under, understand, you know, we can talk about individual concepts in the Gospel of John, but for me, where you start uh, 
And for me, I, I like the notion of sort of time traveling, living in two worlds. Um, there's a there's a popular uh, uh, model. There's a there's a book that I've used as a hermeneutics textbook in teaching undergraduates. It's now out, I think, in its like third edition, Grasping God's Word. Might be fourth edition. There's a diagram in there that talks about that demonstrates. You know, here's our world. Here's the ancient world. There's this bridge. There's a there's a river, a gap that separates the two: time and language and culture and politics and economics and all that. And across, spanning across the two worlds is this principalizing bridge that seems to imply, you know, I, so how do I deal with the biblical text? I, I go, I, I like to say, you go, I go on a raid, right? I go into that ancient world and it's, I, I use the analogies like silver mining. I go down into the mine and I, you know, I dig out the worthless stuff because I'm trying to get those principles, the, the real good stuff. And then I, load them up in my backpack or whatever and bring them back to now. And I, I think that model has some uh, value to it. I'm glad that they believe in the importance of the old, uh, the original context. But for me, all that stuff isn't just sort of background filler and we just have, and all we really need are to pull the principles. Yes, I believe in the principles, but our starting point is to, as much as possible, imaginatively enter into the world of that text, uh, the whole text. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of book studies. So, yeah, I mean, again, I can answer specific questions, but for me, that, that is uh, absolutely important. How do we approach? What are our goals? Uh, I'm not a huge advocate of proof texting you know, amassing, you know, this, these verses are going to prove as though somehow scientifically, I'm going to prove this particular position is correct. Well, I can have arguments, I can be persuasive, but, you know, different, different lenses, people are going to see the text in a different way, depending on which class, you know, what glasses they put on. This Absolutely. Text. Absolutely. So uh, to, to the question like that I had asked, just because, you know, in the first century world, how would the listeners of like when Jesus, when, when he spoke about the father, how would they understand uh, some of those terms? Yeah. So father, son and so forth. Well, you know, obviously there's back, there's all of these titles uh, and in the early part of the gospel of John, uh, his newbie disciples, load him with a lot of titles. I mean, even John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. Some say, you know, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. So, but all of these- Well, even like you said in the prologue, the tabernacle uh, as well. Right, right, exactly. So um, all of these terms, designations have a long sort of prehistory before the New, the New Testament. So I think if we, well- there's so many places to start, but I think an important one is, is Psalm, the Psalms, you know, Psalm chapter two being extremely important because Psalm chapter two sets up, it presents the notion that the nations are in rebellion and um, God is going to place 
uh, his son on the royal throne to rule over these nations. So that becomes sort of the backdrop, the paradigm, which is developed in various ways. Psalm 110, for example, becomes, a, 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 along with Psalm 2, but Psalm 10 in particular becomes an important uh, text for the writer to the Hebrews because Psalm 10 combines the notion of Jesus's exalted status as a, as a, as a king as well as his role as priest. And how does he carry out that priesthood um, after the order of Melchizedek and so forth? So these concepts and these terms have, terms have a rich background and heritage in the, old, in the Old Testament. So when you look at the notion of, son, of sonship, so, I mean, here's an example of Caesar Augustus, Caesar, not, sorry, not Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar, uh, was declared by the Roman Senate uh, posthumously as divine. His adopted son, uh, Caesar Augustus, who became the first Roman emperor, uh, styled himself as the son of God. And so not only does the term son, son of God have a rich Old Testament background, it also was a term in vogue that was in currency in the in the uh, first century from you know pagan sources. So you know, for anyone to say that they were the son of God would be considered subversive because the emperor was considered the son of God. So going back to one fourteen, the whole notion that the logos uh, became uh, you know incarnate, tabernacled among us. What's really interesting is. The last sentence of that prologue, which is verse 18, um, John, John says that, uh, and we, you and I talked a little bit, there's a textual variant there, um, the only uh, or only begotten, I think the better, uh, probably the best translation is only or one of a kind, perhaps, um, that son, that only unique son, is the one who, and in the Greek, it's the term from which we derive the English notion of exegesis. He exegetes uh, this invisible God. So if God is invisible, can't be known, uh, and all of this plays into the Sinai revelation where Moses wants to see God and only gets to see sort of his backside and so forth, just as, you know, a limited view this is all playing off of Sinai, this Sinai epiphany language. Um, the one who is invisible, no man has ever seen God, but this son who's in the bosom of the father, he has explained him, revealed him, made him known. So in that sense, Jesus is the embodiment, which is what Paul says in Colossians. He's the embodiment of God himself. Uh, you know, the, the classic statement that we're, uh, we're accustomed to using as oneness apostolics, you know, sh show me the father, you know, have I been so long time with you, Philip? Uh, he was the, he was the embodiment of that invisible God who can't, who cannot be seen. So, and yes, I, I'm, as someone who's, spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of John, let me just say that we are often, as oneness apostolics, 
I think, a bit uncomfortable with using father-son language. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, father-son language doesn't have to be interpreted, obviously, in, in, a, in a Trinitarian construct. And I say that with due respect to Trinitarians. I'm not, I don't hate them. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are Trinitarians. I came out of a Trinitarian church many decades ago. Um, but these, we have to understand these, uh, these terms relationally and what they meant in their original context. And again, I think we don't, we're not all often comfortable. And so when I teach John, I'm, I'm trying to help my students as fully as possible, um, try to get into the, if you will, the mindset of what John is actually trying to uh, convey to us. What do these terms mean? Can we be comfortable with, with the notion of sonship or son, as, as Jeremy Painter likes to say, sonness? He's, he did his, as you may know, he did his master's thesis on the opening of Hebrews and how God has revealed himself, uh, has spoken in this definitive way through son, right? It's, there's no definite article, simply son. And, and Dr. Painter talks about how that's the agency uh, through which God has spoken in these last, these last days. So yeah, I don't think we should, we should uh, avoid those terms because they're very, very biblical. And I know they've been sort of commandeered by other, uh, you know, theological persuasions. Yeah. Different backgrounds. Uh, so like, um, of course I'm thinking, um, there's, there's two passages that stand out to me that I know I had emailed you about. Um, so we, sometimes uh, we can be put on in an uncomfortable position, I suppose. Uh, even right there in the, in the prologue in that first verse, when it says in the Greek text, uh, proston theon, or uh, was with God. Uh, is that a passage that should make us uncomfortable? Or and what was John meaning when he said that the word was with God? Yeah, no, I don't think we should be uncomfortable. And I think it's, that's an example of a passage where um, because of, of Trinitarian claims on that text, we, we become, I think, a bit perhaps defensive. So I think it, part of it goes back to trying to understand uh, who, you know, what John is trying to explain, who was this man, right? This human being who was also uh, God. And so this sequence of linked, you know, linked uh, vo vocabulary words that the opening of the gospel of John is sort of quasi poetic that which uh, uh, in the beginning was a word and then it picks it's like it's actually a stair step and the word and so forth it's a stair step construction it's actually beautifully uh portraying for us the if you want to call it this this the story the meta narrative of this uh, a notion of the incarnation itself uh that uh, the Logos, of course, connecting it to verse 14, the Logos came, was incarnate, incarnate, incarnated in this human body. So I don't think 
So first century Jews are not thinking about this in terms of, okay, here's, here's uh, this sort of ontological uh, uh, being made up of, of three persons and one sends a, a, a second uh, who the, sort of, as we sometimes say, does the, does the dirty work or something like that. I think, I think this is clarified in verse 14 when we understand that God's very presence was tabernacled in the man Jesus. He was a true, he was a, an, a human being. So to me, that's where all the mystery lies. How in the world do you explain the incarnation? And for me, uh, Trinit Trinitarianism is a, a way, a, a, for, a sort of a foreign way to try to explain uh, the incarnation and for, and for Trinitarians, and I've talked to lots of them, the mystery is the Trinity for them. For us, the mystery is the incarnation. That's the mind, the mind blowing part is how could the God who created the universe who elected the nation of Israel come in a hum, human body? So, uh, and I think John 1 is a way of trying to pre present it uh, that there's a sense in which, so God sent his son, that's that actually from John chapter three, God uh, sent his son. So with a sent motif, I, one way I try to explain it is, so in, in the ancient world, uh, a, an emperor uh, could send, let's say they wanted to uh, make some kind of proclamation or something like that. They would send out an a, a, a envoy, a herald, who would go announce that news. They would become the delegate, the representative, uh, vested with the authority of the one who sent. So there's this, sometimes we know of examples where the emperor would actually pay a personal visit to a province rather than sending someone else, they would show up in person. Well, to me, that is that provides kind of a symbol of what we're seeing there. And there's a sense in which the sender is also the sent one. They, he came himself. So I, I think sometimes it's hard for us to conceive, you know, going back, we gotta go back to the first century and these terms, are there's different terms used. We sometimes refer to them as modes or manifestations when they're, when they're referring to God as the invisible father, let's say, with all, with all the um, whatever baggage that comes, that's not the right term, all the meaning that comes from the Old Testament as father, who, who, um, then, then, then we have the notion of the son who is the embodiment of that invisible God. So again, these are, these are terms that are uh, part and parcel of John's gospel that I think we should be comfortable with. And I don't think we need to be anxious about um, counterclaims from a Trinitarian lens. Because again, I feel like they're, I, I believe they're imposing uh, a grid that was fo is foreign to that first century text. So, so when you come to a text, uh, what would you say to people out there that are 
wanting to get into uh, an ap- academic studies and they're wanting to read this text and, and, and see what the, the text is saying, what would you say is one of the most important fundamentals prerequisites to be able to accurately translate a, a passage? Is it taking a step back and seeing it from, from the point of view of the, the audience or the speaker? How would you, how would you just, what would you say is very important? And uh, to you borrow the, the name of our, com- our podcast, very crucial to being able to accurately understand uh, the New Testament uh, and even the Old Testament. Wow. Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, I like the paradigm of a conversation. Uh, we enter into a conversation with the biblical text. I can ask the text questions. The text hopefully will yield answers to me. And again, I think this the, the, the notion of a Trinitarian interpretation of John is an example of posing the wrong questions to the text. I, for one, um, another example of that is people who want to uh, ask a lot of what I would call post-enlightenment, modernistic, scientific questions of the, of the creation account in Genesis, post-Darwinian perspectives. Well, that's not what the, the text is a, is a beautiful, poetic, uh, symmetrical, and so forth, a beautiful celebration of God's creation. It wasn't designed to answer, you know, 19th and 20th century post-Darwinian questions. That's not what the, so, so uh, we have to be careful of what kind of uh, questions we pose of the text. Again, I'm a huge fan of book studies. So I consider myself both an advocate of, big, of the big view you know, the, uh, the view from a drone, getting up and seeing the landscape as well as delving into the details of the text and how those interact with each other. So I think it's good to read multiple translations if, if one doesn't know Greek. Uh, multiple translations can, especially if we're very familiar with one version can help uh, stimulate us to, to think in a different way, kind of gets us out of our lethargy to hear it Uh, translated in a different way. Um, So original languages, let me, let me just say a couple things uh, about original languages for many people. um, I I, I feel original languages are very important. I was explaining this the other day to someone, they allow us an unmediated uh, 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 approach to the text without having to read through the filter. Most of us, uh, in, many of us in North America only speak one language. We think, you know, we think in English in our case. So, um, I th- and most people in the ancient world were bilingual, trilingual, multi multilingual. So, language is important, and there's nuances in the text, and that that get somewhat lost in translation. There's idioms and so forth that it's hard to translate from one language to another. So, linguistics. Learning Greek is not the same as simply looking up a Greek word in Strong's exhaustive concordance and then looking up the next word and then look and linking them all together as in this, this sentence means this plus this plus this. Language, as we all know, is much more complex. Uh, communica- communication is much more complex. And so I'm a huge advocate 
of actually learning the lang these languages. I, I, I teach Greek. I use the, what's called the living language approach um, because I want people to begin to think in Greek, um, to sort of immerse themselves in the language as a, as a form of communication. The, the, mo the, the best way to, to learn about a foreign uh, land or country or people is to learn their language. It's like the gateway, the entry into their culture. So for me, uh, learning, learning the biblical languages uh, and doing the best we can, we're not all gonna be you know, experts, but it, to me, it just opens up a whole new world. There's, a, there's a, a, an old rabbinic saying uh, talking about Hebrew that <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of, kind of hilarious to, to, to read the Hebrew Bible, and I'm paraphrasing, to read the Hebrew Bible in an English translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. <laughs> you're, not, you're not getting the direct experience. There's a, there's a filter in there. And to me, there's just such a richness and a vividness to reading the, these texts as best as we can. And I, I, I'm not, I consider myself an, a lifelong student of, of Greek and the ancient languages. We read them uh, in these ancient languages. And for me, it helps make them come alive. People are, are asking me all the time, Brother Brickle, what translation do you endorse? What is the translation of translations? I'm like, honestly, I mean, there's some that I use, but for me, I, I prefer to just read the biblical text in its original language and kind of make up the translation as I go along, you know? Right. So, so obviously not, not all of us have that ability at, right now, at least. So what, what are some of your favorite translations? I know that you just said, well, you know, my favorite is the Greek <laughs> text, but to people that, that can't get a hold of a Greek text, what translations do you think that, uh, that would help bring what the, the writers were trying to communicate come alive? Yeah, that's a, that's a complex question because you've got different, different translations, translations operate with, with a different kind of uh, method or goal. So some are more literal, some are more dynamic equivalent, there's some are more paraphrases. And I think it's good to work some like a sort of a triangular, a tri they call triangulation where you work between three translations. And that and that's good. Um, I was I kind of was uh, grew up on the on the King James. I'm a I highly respect the King James is a is a a, a classic. It's a masterpiece. Um, I honestly am not a, a huge fan of 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 sort of a King James only uh, uh, approach. That that is the only translation to me. That's a very English-centric uh, bias or something like that. I've often said that if the KJV translators were alive today and they realize their translation, that some were claiming that's the only translation. Some 400 years later, they would turn over in their grave or they they'd start laughing because if you read the preface, their goal was to translate into the vernacular of the day. Mm -hmm. And language is a moving target. It's it, it changes, it evolves. I mean, I mean, just look at all the, the new terms just during the pandemic that are, are almost like daily currency that we didn't, we not, some of us never even heard of those terms before. It's because 
life moves on. So again, I'm not anti-KJV. I like the New King James quite a bit. Um, ESV is very good. Uh, in some cases, the NIV. Um, but again, I, I, I prefer to, as much as possible, to work uh, with the original languages. Um, whenever we started communicating through email, I noticed down at the bottom of your email, there was a quotation about how when you get money, that you spend the money on books and with all the money that's left over, you spend it on food. And I can't remember right now on top of my head who, who it was that it was quoted as saying that. Uh, yeah. so, so that's a paraphrase from Erasmus, the, the Dutch scholar Erasmus. Okay. So, so with that, uh, obviously being there at the, at the, as the, uh, I guess it's the handle or I'm not sure exactly what they would call that. The I can't signature. think of it. The, the signature. Yes. On your email. Um, how much are you spending in books? <laughs> and and, and I, I'm not asking you to actually give me, give me a, a, a total or anything, but really what I, greater, what I want to do is, is I want to ask you, we've talked about a lot of stuff and you kind of unpack the whole conversation. Why is the conversation, why do you, why do you feel that the conversation we've had today is important? Why is it important that we study? Why is it important that we, that we, we read? What, what do you think is the importance of education and, and having your mind challenged with, with different thoughts? And, and I think even before we started recording, you said that you like the idea of, of the name of this podcast as being a crucial conversation. And you talked about the value of conversation. Why do you think these things are important. Yeah, so books open up worlds. One can travel uh, to places, to thoughts that, uh, so to me, books open up a universe that I otherwise, you know, couldn't, uh, couldn't access. So to be, to, to me, to read a book is to be in a conversation with someone else who may have an expertise, has something to say. Yeah, books are a huge part of my my life. Uh, <laughs> some might say my family, they might say my books are, you know, my part of my family. Uh, uh, in answer to your one question, uh, as a professor, I, uh, in, mo in most, um, a lot of seminaries and, and universities do this, I, I actually get some uh, funds, professional development funds that I can invest in uh, books and, and uh, you know, I belong to various academic societies, so I can use that money to uh, purchase books, which has been a, an enormous uh, blessing. Um, you know, as someone who teaches in a graduate school, I, I encourage my graduate students to begin to construct a, a really good uh, uh, library of, of biblical studies and theology. Um, and I, it's part, I consider this part of a, what I do is part of a conversation. Uh, I'm part of a, an academic society. I belong to Society of Biblical Literature, Society for Pentecostal Studies, the Institute for Biblical Research. Um, and I feel like, uh, as Dr. Robin Johnson has said, it's like sitting at a conference table and I'm sitting down with these scholars and I listen to what they have to say. And I have a voice as well. And so I try to represent uh, the apostolic message to these to these scholars. So, so building a, a library to me, a good a good library is 
critical. These are the tools of the of the trade, and uh, it's a it's a big it's a big investment. But uh, I you know I don't know what I would do without 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 books. So I have my live my my personal library is made up of many many books uh, that are both in all kinds of areas. Uh, biblical languages, theological issues, biblical studies. I've got commentaries and a lot of monographs on areas that I'm really, really interested in. And I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, it's an interesting place to be at an apostolic seminary because we have a precious tradition, a heritage that, that I'm upholding, that we're representing. And yet there's a sense as a, as a scholar we're pushing the envelope a bit. We're innovating in some ways, and I'm, I'm I like to learn about new approaches and methods. Um, I'm really, really fond of classical studies, uh, Homer, uh, Plato, and, and so forth, ancient philosophy, and so the 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 classical scholars as a whole. That field um, tends to be ahead of biblical studies. With, with their methodology. So I, a lot of the work I do is in uh, classical studies and learning about new tools and methods that then I can apply in a fresh way as a lens to, to help better understand the biblical text. You know, and that's, and that's sort of what I did with my doctoral dissertation. I took a new, uh, well, an, a, 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 an approach that it was well-known in classical studies, that uh, orality and so forth, and I applied it to a biblical text that had never really been applied to in any kind of thoroughgoing manner. So again, to answer your question, I love, I love to read. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Mark Twain. Uh, I, I read widely, but I also read in my, you know, more focused in my own specialized discipline. And, and I'm, by the way, I've uh, pitched a book idea a while back to PPH uh, I want to, I want to, this may sound strange. I want to write a book about books. Uh, I want to write a book I, I, and I've got the chapters sketched out and so forth. I want to write a book to encourage apostolics to cultivate a reading, a culture of reading. Um, I fully endorse our Pentecostal culture with our worship, uh, the work of the, the role of the spirit and, 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 uh, all of those kind of things, but I think we're kind of lagging behind a bit in, in reading. And the first century Christians were avid readers and their world sort of in many ways revolved around, they were people of the book, it revolved around reading the scriptures. And so I want to, you know, I want us to develop our, our worldview, our concepts, our, our intellect so that we're thinking, we're able to engage with these kind of conversations so we can be more effective witnesses to a thinking world. So, and I don't see the two as pitted against one, one another, that they're somehow diametrically opposed. You know, there's, there's the spirit and there's, there's the intellect. You take someone like Paul, you mentioned before, a man of great learning. There's a guy who pulled out all the stops. He took his vast learning, his training as a Pharisee, his... Uh, uh, edu edu uh, probably some rhetorical education and so forth, and he put and he and he harnessed all that together. Um, 
And I'm actually writing a paper for the upcoming UGST symposium and how on, on Luke's workshop, talking about Luke's credentials, his research skills, his writings uh, ability as an ancient historiographer, his own training in rhetoric and in medicine and, uh, and so forth, and how he took all that, took all of his training, his skills, and he wrote this two volume masterpiece, Luke and its uh, sequel, The Acts of the Apostles. And look how blessed we are to have those. So that's an example of, you know, we, we shouldn't let our minds be just coasting along and filled with worthless media trash and all that, but we should be cultivating and bettering our minds as well. And that involves, to me, it involves good, re you know, reading. Right. Absolutely. And, and it is very important. Uh, I, I certainly believe that, that we, we know what we're talking about when we're, when we're presenting uh, sermons, when we're dialoguing with people in order to try and uh, win them to the Lord. And, and it, you know, it, it does. And I'll, I'll just say for me, it does frustrate me uh, sometimes where it seems like um, where some scholarship can be criticized, I, I think unfairly, because I mean, obviously I believe that it's important because as, as someone who hasn't ever been to seminary or anything, I, I, I value the works that you and your colleagues are doing. And I've seen people doing book reviews and they say, well, you know, this person has a liberal bend because they just put in, because they wrote in their whatever about, this and I'm just like, well, you know, some of it, some of these things, we at least need to know about it so we can actually consider. We can actually think about different things, like, uh, uh like, like I, I think I, I saw one about how, um, I can't remember what it was exactly. Even when one of the, I, I can't remember what it is. So I won't even speculate about it. But it is frustrating to me sometimes where where scholarship can be criticized as having a liberal bias whenever you're just presenting the truth and, and what actual, what has actually been studied and found out. And even though we may not always agree with it, we should at least know that it's there. So that way we can see how to piece things together. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't want to skip past you giving an input on this if you'd like to. Yeah, well, I, I recognize like anything that there are dangers inherent in scholarship and just because I'm a mem a, a participating member for many years of the society of, of biblical literature and I've presented many papers and I've made all kinds of friends and connections and pub and I publish as a, as a result of those connections. Um, that doesn't mean I endorse, obviously I don't endorse all the viewpoints and even within the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the largest uh, association of biblical scholars and students in the world, uh, that there, there's a wide spectrum from what I would call radical left, create some crazy stuff all the way to very conservative Bible-believing people believe in the inspiration of the text. So, yeah, I, I recognize that, sure, there's a danger of doing scholarship, but one of the, the beauties of the church is we have a community of people gifted in various ways, and I have uh, colleagues, you know, I, I, I have a, a, a connections with a lot of apostolic scholars. I have colleagues that teach at the graduate school and the under at Urshan and the undergraduate at the graduate and graduate schools, graduate and undergraduate schools. And so we can bounce ideas off, you know, there's, 
there's sort of a, a safety net, if you will, in being able to have this, have conversations. So, you know, some of the most, I'll just be frank here, some of the most wacky ideas I've ever heard, weird, bizarre stuff came from oneness apostolic people, sometimes ministers, who they, they were lone rangers. They simply studied, they came up with these ideas and there was no vetting, there was no way to test them, they didn't interact, they didn't you know, maybe go to a neighboring pastor and said, what do you think about this idea? And that pastor should have said, that's absolutely crazy. And those people come up with some strange stuff. So in a sense, as scholars, we're we're public figures or, or whatever, people who are delving in scriptures, we have a community that we can engage in these healthy conversations with. And if you, you think, you know, whatever, Dr. Brickle, you're off your rocker, that that idea is so unscriptural. Well, hey, good, because then we can talk about it. And so there's checks and balances within the church to, to, to kind of keep some of these uh, wrong ideas from going, you know, going very far. So, yeah, because it's happened in, I mean, history does repeat itself. You know, there has been times where the church for century was was dog, uh, bogged down by false doctrine because somebody had borrowed this idea from this train of thought and and even though there were people that fought against it ultimately there was uh you know through the of course we can go through the ecumenical councils and how things became orthodoxy over that but but i mean i, I think it's important that we have safe people and again this is from the opposite end of where, where you are, this from, from the uneducated uh, perspective of it. I think there's tremendous safety in having people like you, which is why I, I, I salute you and, and your colleagues for the work that you've done, because I feel like uh, you guys present a, a safe work where we can actually discuss what the Bible says and, and, and some of those fringy ideas that can creep in. Um, people that are academics that have spent a lot of time in this, I, I don't, I, I don't want to dismiss uh, people that actually contend with the original language and things like that. So I certainly s- salute you and 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 all of your colleagues for that. And thank you for the work that you're doing. It has enriched me, and so I'm very grateful. Um, here at the the uh, the end of this conversation, since I know you have a Greek te- uh, class to uh, be a part of in just a little bit, and so I think we're at an hour 15. So uh, I told you about an hour and an hour and a half. So that way you'd have plenty of time. And so I want to ask you, I know I sent you a lot of questions early, you know, whenever we first dialogued and you were like, well, I don't know what this is all about. This is like, I'm doing one of my, my class, I'm getting quiz on one of my uh, classes in for, a, um, or I can't remember exactly how you put it, but I, I sent you a lot of questions and, and, and I know that you probably, you, I don't believe you would have taken things like that very lightly and you indicated to me that you even wanted to take some time to look at a few things. Um, since we've gone a little while, is there anything that you came today prepared to talk about that I've missed that we could, that you want to discuss? Or if it's not anything even related with uh, the questions I had asked before, if there's something that has, through this conversation, sparked in your, your mind that you want to either go deeper in or you got sidetracked that you wanted to uh, route back to, is there anything that we've missed that we that you would like to discuss? Uh, I don't know that there's really anything out of the, the list of questions that uh, 
you sent me and we, we talked about a little bit. Um, I guess one, one thing that comes to mind in all of this, and this is an area of research that I'm very passionate about, and this has to do with the, our memories. And we were talking about the importance of developing our minds and so forth. And in modern Western culture, uh, information is typically stored outside of ourselves, right? So if I wanna find out any kind of information, I can Google it, I can search for it. We've got devices that store information and retrieve information that exist outside of ourselves. And we were talking earlier about uh, people, you know, how were books read when people were basically illiterate? How was that done? And we talked about the, a little bit about memory. So for me, when you when you go back to the ancient world, they were people of memory. They were a, a, a memorial culture. Uh, they didn't have uh, databases to store information, computers. Uh, many of them didn't have books. Books were relatively expensive to, to produce. And what's really interesting is ancient books uh, and I know it's hard for us to conceive of this, where in a sense, uh, functioned like a script to be read aloud. I mean, yes, they served a function in one sense to preserve information, but, get, but guess where most uh, valuable traditions and texts were stored? They were stored in the mind and in the heart. And we can, we can see this going back to uh, the, the, the wisdom traditions of the Old Testament, Proverbs, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but take the words of your father, the, you know, the words of your mother, bind them on your heart, wrap them around your neck, all this kind of stuff. So that whatever activity you're, you're in, day to day, you're walking, you're, you're doing this, you're doing that, those texts actually speak to you from within. So this is sort of an addendum, I guess, to this whole notion of developing our minds. If we want to under, so let's take Paul, for example, and this is where this all kind of hit home with me, a famous book, uh, an important scholarly book by a, a scholar named Richard Hayes, H-A-Y-S, Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul came out in the late 1980s. And he talked about how Paul was this saturated with Scripture. And we know that in the ancient, we know of feats of memory where people would uh, memorize enormous amounts of information. Uh, many ancient Jews and even a number, a lot of Jews today memorize the entire Torah in Hebrew. So for, you know, so when Paul is writing these letters, I don't think, you know, he's looking over, uh, you know, Tychicus or whoever it may be, can you find that scroll of, uh, of Deuteronomy, I need, I need a cite from that. Or if we think of, you know, Jesus tempted in the wilderness, what does he do? He sort of, it's so ingrained in him, the book of Deuteronomy, that he cites it when the devil tempts him. Um, so the whole notion of internalizing the biblical texts so that they are part of us and shape the way we think, so that we're not only and this may seem like a fine distinction. We're not only thinking about the biblical text, we are thinking the biblical text. So the text constantly is, is speaking to us and directing us and 
So for, for someone like Paul, who had been raised as a Pharisee, knew the Old Testament inside and out, and now he's on the Damascus Road, and he's knocked down, and now he has this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the hope, he's the hope and aspirations of the, the messianic hope and aspirations of the Jewish people. Now he has to rethink all this. He's got this huge repertoire of scriptures that he now has to sort of reprocess and refilter through the notion of Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. So I said all that to say that it's not just about, I want to learn some new things, but for me, the study of scripture has to go uh, to the point where it's it's written on our on our minds and written on our on our hearts. That's actually a biblical phrase. That everywhere we go, Scripture is a living word within us. And so, in a sense, you know, some scholars have said this whole notion of logos, what we were talking about earlier, um, it has a lot of uh, connecting points to parts of the Old Testament wisdom, for example. Um, Lady Wisdom, who was there with God in the creation, when no one thought of her as this sort of ontological being separate from God, it's a way of representing how God uh, uh, wisely created the universe, wisely guides life, and so forth. So there's a whole lot I could say, but I think it's so critical in our day and age of using external devices, we can use a concordance, we can look up verses on our, on our cell phone, you know, maybe let's get the word deep, deep into our, into our, the very fabric of our being, uh, Ezekiel, uh, you know, he was d- divinely, uh, or, uh, directed to do what, to take the scroll and consume it, it would be bitter in his mouth, but sweet, in his, in his belly and John the Revelator, the same kind of notion before he could go out and witness to the, to, to the world, he was to first uh, make those, that's, those scriptures part of his very being, you know, flowing through his bloodstream, the, nu- the nutrition of the word, the bread of life. And so, you know, I would, I would urge people to, we, we shouldn't just be casual readers of scripture. You know, I've, and I'm not against the bread program, but just blast through it, check off a box or, you know, read a few passages here and there. I've got my favorite passages. No, what does it mean to actually um, not just be sort of a consumeristic reader of scripture, but, but to make it our, our, our passion, our, that we're driven to get these scriptures inside of ourselves that they, they change the way we think. They become the worldview. We think scripturally. And I think any, any of the New Testament writers, whether it's Luke or Paul or John or whoever it may be, uh, that was their world. They, they knew the scriptures forwards, backwards, inside and out. And, that, and they interpreted Jesus sort of through that, their understanding of those scriptures. Thank you very much uh, again for your time. I think this has been a fascinating conversation. And just to tag into what you were saying about how it needs to be a part of us, I think, uh, and I, I, again, you, you may correct me when we, uh, real quick, but I think that that was an idea in the Old Testament of the binding of scripture physically yeah. on you. Shema. Exactly. They would they would wear it on their foreheads and on their, their hands. And 
And, and I think that it's it's symbolic of how in this new covenant we should think it and we should act on it. It should become part of us. And so I certainly agree with that. And, and I appreciate you for uh, bringing that back to our attention. I think that is important. Uh, thank you again uh, for, for taking time on this Tuesday uh, to, to have a conversation with us. I've greatly enjoyed it. Thank you for being a part of the Crucial Conversation podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the time. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so um, before, before I end the recording, where can, uh, again, I know we've mentioned some of your writings before, where can uh, listeners, if they want to know more about some of these subjects and uh, they want to get some of your materials and, and find out where can they find some of your works at? Oh boy, that's a great, great question. Um, some of my, like my, my dissertation, uh, which is several years back was published in a paperback form, a more inexpensive paperback form. I mean, that's readily available on Amazon. Uh, uh, link, well, boy, LinkedIn. I mean, I have a LinkedIn uh, profile, which lists some of my, uh, the, my writings. Uh, I'm actually in the process of starting my own, uh, I plan to start a blog site, which I'll list some of that as well. Um, of course, PPH has published the uh, handbook series, which I was involved in. I was the New Testament editor uh, for the Apostolic Study Bible and contributed some of the study notes for that. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to actually say which ones I contributed to uh, for proprietary reasons, but anyway, uh, I was definitely involved in that project. So, yeah. All right, so Pentecostal Publishing House, they can go to your LinkedIn and then your dissertation is on Amazon. So, uh, uh, again, I know I have the Apostolic Handbook series. It's been very beneficial. I definitely recommend it. Uh, thank you again. And thank you for having a crucial conversation. Thank you. Wow, 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 wow.